Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can come before your presence with rejoicing in our hearts because we serve a risen Savior. We thank you, Father, for the gift that you have given to us in your word. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us through it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 2008, and I found myself in Paducah, Kentucky. I was holding a Bible prophecy seminar there. We had just started the meetings, and things were going well. One day, I found myself uh, aimlessly wandering through a Barnes & Noble store. We like books, and so every now and then, we would frequent the bookstore. That was back before we had kids, and we had more time to do that kind of stuff. And as I was pacing through the bookstore and walking up and down the aisles, looking at different books, um, somebody tapped me on my shoulder, and I turned around to this young guy, and he said, I recognize you. you. Your face was on that thing that came out in the mail. Yeah, that's right, the Revelation Seminar. That, that, that's me. Hey, can we sit down and chat for a few minutes? I have some questions. <laughs> now, this is like a dream come true for an evangelist, you know I mean? This is great. I thought, sure, yeah, let's do this. So we, you know, inside Barnes & Nobles, they have this little cafe there, and we, we pulled up a chair, and we sat down, and we proceeded to have a conversation. It was very cordial. We got to know each other, and we were just talking about our love for the Word of God and various things. And then he asked me the question that usually people ask, and that is, what church is sponsoring this seminar? Well, we're not ashamed as Seventh-day Adventists, amen? So I told him, I said, you know, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but this is a seminar for people of all different denominations. You know, it's just for everybody in our community. Well, as soon as I told him I was a Seventh-day Adventist, the first thing that people usually ask is, why do you go to church on Saturday? In fact, you just here at the seminar a couple nights ago. I met one of our dear guests that had come into the meetings, and she asked me, what does Seventh-day Adventist mean? That just thrills my heart when somebody asks me that question. Because we have a name for our church that actually means something. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you explain what our church, the name of our church, you're giving somebody a Bible study, whether you like it or not. And so I was telling him, and, 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 and he asked this question, and so we were talking, and, and, and he had some questions about the Sabbath, as most people do. And, and each question, I tried to present him the Word of God to answer those objections. I gave him passage after passage after passage because we know the Bible is full of evidence that supports the Seventh-day Sabbath from Genesis to Revelation. But with each Bible passage that I gave him, whether it was the Old Testament, whether it was the New Testament, whether it was Jesus, whether it was Paul, whether it was, whoever it was, whatever passage I gave him, somehow he reasoned away that, passages, that passage application in his own life and its application to keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. We got to the end of the conversation And he was no more informed about the Sabbath than he was when we first started because he chose not to be. In fact, in the course of our conversation, I shared with him some of the passages in Acts. Acts is a great book of the Bible to go to to prove that the Sabbath was still observed by by both Jew and Gentile after Jesus died on the cross. And even those passages in Acts, he said, oh, hang on a second, I need to call my friend up who's studying Greek and understand the Greek a little bit on that passage. Listen, Greek and Hebrew is wonderful, but we can look at the plain reading of God's word and know what he's saying. Amen? 
Now, as I left that conversation, as I mentioned, he was no more informed about the Sabbath than when we started. And as I already mentioned, it was because he chose to not be, not because the word of God failed him in any way. And we run across this quite often. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, we get asked questions about our faith, and we have the opportunity to respond. And so we've gone through this before where people have rejected various things that we have presented to them. But I've oftentimes wondered to myself, are we as Adventists ex- exempt from the same way of thinking that this young man had that I met in the cafe at Barnes & Noble's? No, we don't reject the Sabbath. We would never do that. We don't reject the state of the dead. We would never do that. We don't reject the reality of Christ's second coming. But are there places in Scripture where we might try to harmonize or or, or reason away, rather, that passage's application in our lives? When we do that, we are treading on very thin ice. I would submit to you this morning that as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not exempt from that. By God's grace, it doesn't happen within the four walls of this church. But I'm not naive enough to think that perhaps it isn't. God is looking for people who live as Jesus lived by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to do that? Do you think it will be easy for us to do that? Popular theology in the world is going in one direction and God's people are going in the other and the devil is constantly trying to pull the Seventh-day Adventist church in the current that the world is trying to go. We must constantly and daily and moment by moment resist that urge to go along with what the world would have us do. I'm going to share with you a couple of examples of this from the Bible. Go with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. It's where it all began. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord is speaking here to Adam. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree which is, uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Are God's commands complicated? This is the thing I love about God, and it's the thing I love about his word. It is not a complicated book. We make it complicated. If somebody comes to a Bible prophecy seminar without any preconceived notions, and they hear the message on the seventh-day Sabbath, they will accept it because it makes sense. If somebody comes to the Bible prophecy seminar without any preconceived ideas about the state of the state of the dead, they will accept it because it makes sense. It is clear. It is easy to see from the word of God. But it's when we add our human reasoning to the word of God that things become complicated and difficult to understand. And that's exactly what Eve did in the garden. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says this, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is, uh, with, with, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. What did God say? You will die. What did the serpent say? You will not die. That's the way the devil operates. He always goes directly contrary to the word of God. God has a seventh day. He has a first day. The Bible says you sleep. He says you go to heaven or hell. You know, the Bible says God's going to come climactically. He says, no, it's going to be a two-phase coming in. It's going to be secretly at first. The devil always has something that counterfeits the Lord, and he goes directly contrary. You shall not surely die, verse 5, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. Uh, and, he, and he says, uh, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And the woman, and when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Isn't it interesting how the devil tries to make sin look attractive? God's trying to keep something from you. If you eat from this fruit, you'll become wise. You'll become all-knowing. You'll become like God. God is trying to keep something good away from you. He hasn't changed at all. He does the same thing today with every sin that we struggle with. He has to make it look attractive, like it's going to benefit us in some way. But we have to remind ourselves that what the devil is telling us is not a truth, but it will only bring pain and suffering as it did to Adam and Eve. But notice again what the Bible says there in verse 6. The Bible says, and when the woman what? When the woman what? Saw that the tree was good and desirable. She went with the physical evidence. She looked at what was before her. She saw a serpent that was speaking to her. She'd never seen something like that before. And after all, if the serpent ate from the fruit and he was able to speak and made him more intelligent, might it do the same thing to her? And so she began to reason in her mind what would happen if she ate from the tree. Yes, God said this, but I'm faced with the physical evidence. And Eve decided to put her own interpretation on what the word of the Lord said. And she ate from the fruit of the tree. And we've been struggling with the result of that for 6,000 years. At the foundation of every sin, friends, is reinterpreting the word of God to fit our opinion instead of what the word of God says. It's at the foundation of every sin. Genesis chapter 6. See it again. Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. Right before the flood, the Bible says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. The wise men of the time said it's never rained before. The Bible says that the mist came up from the ground and watered the the earth. The scientists of the time, the wise men, the antediluvian world, who were brilliant people, 
They said that what Noah was teaching could not possibly happen. It went contrary to the laws of science. But Noah knew only one thing, and that's what God said. Sure, science says one thing. Sure, reasoning says one thing. But Noah knew what God said. In fact, the Bible tells us that Noah walked with God. Have you ever read that before? Who else walked with God? find that very interesting, that connection between Enoch and Noah. You know, Enoch was Noah's great-great-great-grandfather. So that influence trickled down to Noah. And Noah walked with God, and he heard the voice of God, and he heard the reasoning of men. But when it came to a choice between one or the other, Noah went with the plain, thus saith the Lord. Listen to this inspiration here. Signs of the time, April 18th, 1895. It says this. The wise men of this world talked of science and the fixed laws of nature and declared that there could be no variation in these laws and that this message of Noah could not possibly be true. The talented men of Noah's time set themselves in league against God's will and purpose and scorned the message and messenger that he had sent. Sound familiar to the time we're living in today? She goes on, when they could not move Noah, I love that that little phrase right there. What does she say? When they could not move Noah by their reasonings, when they could not move Noah from his firm, implicit trust in the word of God, they pointed to him as a fanatic. As a ranting old man, full of superstition and madness, thus they condemned him because he would not be turned from his purpose by reasonings and theories of men. What did Jesus say? Matthew 24, Luke 17. As it was in the, so shall it be in the, They pointed to Noah as a what? A fanatic. As a ranting, old, crazy man. Why? Because they could not move him from his firm, implicit trust in the word of God. Their reasonings, their cunningly devised thinking could not move the man of God from his firm platform of the word of God. The firm stance that we take as Seventh-day Adventists on the Sabbath, on the state of the dead, on the uh, second coming, on, on all of these various doctrines, the firm stance that we make on those doctrines, we need to take that same thing and apply it to every aspect of God's word. We need to be like Noah. I cannot do anything other than what God's word has said. In fact, she goes on and she says this, very interesting. She says, it was true that Noah could not controvert their philosophies or refute the claims of science so called. But he could proclaim the word of God for he knew it contained the infinite wisdom of the creator. This word that God has given to us, the infinite word of God, this is our business as Seventh-day Adventists. There is no other business that should consume our minds than the proclamation of God's word. Would you say amen? This is our business. 
This is the purpose of our existence. This is why we function as a Seventh-day Adventist church. This is why this building was built. This is why we have leaders in our church. This is why we give money for the proclamation of the three angels' messages to finish this work. Sometimes I wonder if we would rather stay here than go there by the actions of our life. If we really are serious about getting to the kingdom of heaven, then we need to be about our father's business. And be like Noah, standing in the face of opposition and proclaiming a plain, thus saith the Lord, the message of salvation. Let them call us fanatics. Let them call us raving old lunatics. Let them call us whatever name they want to. But my Bible tells me if I stand on the word of God, I'm a son of God. And that's all that matters. Amen? Go over a couple of chapters, Genesis chapter 9. Right after the flood. Genesis chapter 9, verse 13. This is God talking. He says, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth earth why did God give the rainbow is a promise right that he would not what destroy the earth but what did they do after the flood did they believe that promise no they reasoned the direct opposite before they flood they said God is so loving he would never destroy the earth with a flood science won't allow such a thing to take place no they were destroyed as a result of that but after the flood they reasoned the other way they said if this 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 crazy God if he could actually do this malicious deed of destroying the earth with a flood, he cannot be trusted. And so just in case he decides to change his mind, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. But just in case he decides to change his mind, let's build this tower. And it wasn't just a physical tower, it was a philosophical tower that led them further away from God as you let the story unfold. But let us build this tower just in case this God decides to change his mind. It's no different. Eve, Noah, and the wicked after the flood, they all were dealing with the same thing. Do I believe the word of God as it is spoken, or do I believe the word of God as I think God should have spoken that particular word? Now, the Bible tells me that Jesus lived by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and it cost him his life in the end, and it might cost some of us our lives. But what's this life in comparison to the life to come? Now let's fast forward a couple of thousand years from this to the time of the Reformation, the Great Reformation. Some think that the, 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 the movement or the belief that was prominent in the time of the Reformation was the doctrine of righteousness by faith, which was a very prominent theme during the time of Luther and various other things. But the broader teaching of the Reformation that, that, that encompasses more than just righteousness by faith was the belief of sola scriptura. Have you ever heard that before? 
which means the Bible and the Bible only. That was really the, the engine of the Reformation. And John Wycliffe got that going when he translated the Bible into the common language where people could read it for themselves. Ella White refers to him as the morning star of the Reformation. She says that for hundreds of years, there was not a reformer that met the, the level of John Wycliffe. But the engine of the Reformation was the Bible and the Bible only. That's what drove them, not church creed, not what man said, not what the teachings of science said, but the Word of God. In fact, you know at that time they taught that the earth was flat. The church taught that the earth was flat. And the church should have studied their Bible because my Bible tells me the earth is round. Do you know there's still Christians today who believe that the earth is flat? It's crazy to me. NASA is a fraud and all of these various craziness. The devil will do whatever he can to try to distract us. But listen to what Inspiration says. Great Controversy, page 137. This is talking about Zwingli, one of the great reformers. She says this. He, that is Zwingli, submitted himself to the Bible as the word of God. The only sufficient, infallible rule. Listen to this. He saw that it, the Bible, must be its own interpreter. What must the Bible be? What did Eve do? She interpreted the word of God. What did the wicked people do before the flood? They interpreted the word of God. What did the wicked people do after that? And you can just go on. All wickedness comes from man's interpretation of scripture. But the Reformation, the genius of the Reformation was the Bible must be its own interpreter. And the thing I love about doing Adventist evangelism is that I can answer everything that I believe from the Word of God. I do not need church creed. I do not need the spirit of prophecy. I do not need any other writings but the Word of God to prove what I believe as a Seventh-day Adventist. The genius of the Reformation was that they gave us that that the Bible must be its own interpreter and nothing other than the Bible should be our sole authority. He dared not attempt to explain scripture to sustain a preconceived theory or doctrine, but held it his duty to learn what is the direct and obvious teaching. And the duty that was found to Zwingli is the duty that is ours as well, and that is to open our Bibles and to find out what is its teaching for us today. You know, we used to sing the song in Cradle Roll, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will. Did you not sing that song? Or did you forget it? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. Right? We used to sing that with our kids, and maybe some of you sing it now with your grandkids. But are we actually doing it as adults? We need to pray and read our Bibles every day. This is what's going to, this is the roadmap. And the devil's trying to distract us from the roadmap. He's trying to distort the roadmap. He's trying to put his own spin on the roadmap so that you make a wrong turn along the journey. We need to read our Bibles and pray every day so we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of God and his will for us and apply its teachings in our lives. Listen to what it said of Luther. Great Controversy, page 126. It says this. He, Luther, firmly declared that the Christians should receive no other doctrines than those which rested on the authority of the sacred scriptures. These words, listen to this, these words struck at the very foundation of the papal supremacy, 
they contained the vital principle of the Reformation. What was the vital principle of the Reformation? Everything must come from the Word of God. We were born out of that. That is our heritage as Seventh-day Adventists. Our founding fathers of the church, the great pioneers, they were birthed out of that mindset that everything must come from the word of God. That's why in 1844, when the great disappointment happened, they were not shaken out of the church because they realized that God's word never fails us. We're the ones that make wrong conclusions. And so they went back to the Bible and studied it for themselves and found out where they made their error. We're not studying our Bibles, brothers and sisters. We may be discouraged and shaken out of this church by the cunningly devised fables of Satan that come our way. We may be discouraged because we don't have an answer when we could have an answer if we had only spent the time in the word of God as we should have. So I ask you the question this morning. Do we believe what the Bible says when it tells us by beholding, it doesn't say it exactly like that, of course, but the principle is there. Second Corinthians 3.18, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, changed into the same image. Do we believe that? Not only do we believe that, but do we allow that to be a guiding principle in what we do and observe in our lives? Or do we think maybe we somehow have power over that principle and can observe wicked things and think that it doesn't affect us? Lord forbid that any Seventh-day Adventist would think something like that, but I have a feeling that somehow it's trickled into the church at some point. Do we believe the Bible when David says, I will place no wicked thing before my eyes? David was acquainted with what happened when you do that. And you probably are too. But maybe it's not as publicized as it was with David. But do we believe that? Sure, we believe the Sabbath. Sure, we believe the state of the dead. Sure, we believe the second coming. But what about what we have in our living rooms, that one-eyed monster that pipes in the world's wickedness into all the houses of North America? You're going to have to forgive me because this is one of my soapboxes. And I'm going to just make it plain to you right here at the very beginning of my pastoral ministry here. I believe that Seventh-day Adventists will not be translated with televisions in their home that are piping in the wickedness of this world. Because by beholding, you are changed. And if that's what you're beholding, that's what you will become like. People come to me and they say, Pastor, I have a hard time having my devotions. How much time are you spending watching television? Pastor, I have a hard time understanding the Bible. It just doesn't make sense to me. How much time are you spending on the Internet watching the various things of this world? Listen, brothers and sisters, if we believe that we are living in the end of earth's history, we need to get the wickedness out of our life and out of our homes. If we believe that we are preparing now to live where angels tread, if we believe that with all of our heart, it's going to govern how we live our lives. It's just a plain and simple principle. I think it's a shame that Seventh-day Adventists would spend money on direct TV. I think it's a shame that Seventh-day Adventists would pay for something like that when they have a hard time paying their tithe and their offering. Come on now, amen? You know the pastor's preaching the truth this morning. But the question is, do we really believe this as Seventh-day Adventists? 
Yes, we believe all the doctrines, but what about all those other things? Well, we try to reason them away. Well, there's some good things on there. There's a Discovery Channel. There's the History Channel. Yeah, full of a bunch of un, uh, you know, biased facts and, and evolution. Yeah, do we really want that? Now, I'm going to be the first to say that the television can be used for something good. Right? It's being used for good things all throughout the world. The gospel is being spread through the medium of the television. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning, and I think you understand that. Do we really believe this as Seventh-day Adventists? Do we believe the Bible when the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that him that defiles the temple of God, God has very serious consequences for that. And do we take care of the body temple that God has given to us the way we know we ought to? And God has given us great light on that from the Bible and spirit of prophecy. Do we believe that as Seventh-day Adventists? Do we believe the Bible when the Bible says, you are the light of the world? Go out and spread the gospel. You are disciples. You need to be preaching the gospel. The Lord has called us to be ministers for him. Do we believe that? Do we believe it when Jesus says that the harvest is plenteous? Do we believe that? Do we believe that there are plenty of people in Muskegon that, according to the spirit of prophecy, are wistfully looking to the kingdom of heaven, waiting only to be gathered in? Do we really believe that? If we do, how does that affect how we live our lives? Is it just a a fact in the back of our head that we know and we can quote and we, we, we we can pat ourselves on the back that we know it? Or does it change the way we actually live our lives? What I'm getting at this morning is simply this. Do we take the Bible for what it says or do we take the Bible for what we think it ought to say given the time and the circumstances that we are living in? I think if we would take a slow, hard look at our lives, we might find that the deception of the Garden of Eden has crept its way into God's remnant church. But that deception will be ousted before Christ comes back because God is coming to look for a church without spot or wrinkle. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 very quickly. I will not do this chapter much justice this morning. I will have to do that another time. But I want to quickly remind us of the heart of Adventism. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. And I, heard, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Two great doctrines in that Bible passage that have been questioned within the, our ranks. The investigative judgment and the seven-day creation week. Do we believe what the Bible says, or are we going with popular, cunningly devised fables? Listen to me carefully this morning, brothers and sisters. If we believe that we are living in the time of the investigative judgment, the Bible does not say that the hour of his judgment is coming. When Paul talked to Felix in the book of Acts, the Bible says he reasoned of righteousness and of judgment to come. And it says, as a result, Felix trembled to think about the judgment to come. But do we as Seventh-day Adventists tremble that we are living in the judgment time right now? If we really believe that as Seventh-day Adventists, as we ought, 
It should govern how we live our lives. It should govern the way we respond or react with the word of God. The purging of sin, as we know, on the Day of Atonement, it was a time of reflecting and afflicting of their souls to make sure that their life was right with God. Do we believe that as Seventh-day Adventists? Or is that something in the distance? Oh, my grandmother used to say that Jesus was going to come in her generation. Surely he won't come in mine. That's what we mumble under our breath. If we believe what the Bible says here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, it will make an unbelievable impact in the way we live our daily lives. Verse 8, the Bible says this, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. If you want a better understanding of that passage, you need to come to the Unlocked Revelation Seminar. Because I have a hunch that's going to be unpacked in a pretty powerful way. You know why? Because it's part of the everlasting gospel. Oh, pastor, let's not talk about that. That's too stern of a message. Babylon has fallen. There's much good in Babylon. We can learn from Babylon about church growth and worship methods and theology. They're sincere. They're successful. Their churches are growing. Let's learn about evangelism from them. The Bible says that Babylon is fallen. We need to remember that. Now, it's true that the Bible says God has his people in Babylon. Amen? That's why we do evangelism. Because God's people are out there. But the Bible tells them to what? Come out. And who are we as God's people to be going back? Come on now, say amen. The Bible says Babylon has fallen. Let's call them out so that we can become that church without spot or wrinkle that are looking forward to the soon coming of our merciful Savior in the clouds of heaven to come and take us home. You know, Babylon believes that much, if not all, of the law of God was done away with. Babylon believes that once you are saved, you are always saved. Babylon believes in a two-faced coming of Christ. Who are we to be going to Babylon? Let us go to the Word of God instead, amen? Let us go to the Bible and the Bible only. Verses 9 and 10. Quickly now, let's wrap this thing up. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mix- mixture in the, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Let's skip that Bible passage. It's there, but we kind of just... We don't like to think about that. It's so stern. In fact, I know many times in many of the churches that I've done seminars, they would have been perfectly happy if I had skipped the message on the mark of the beast. They'd have been perfectly happy if I had skipped the message on the Antichrist power. Oh, those are two uncomfortable messages. But it's part of the everlasting gospel. Yes, it's raw. It's so raw, that Bible passage, where God says the results of, effect, of receiving the mark of the beast. It's raw. But the best way I've heard this explained was by a friend of mine who said that it's very similar to a family who's having a picnic next to a busy freeway and their son runs towards the traffic at 70 miles an hour. What does the mother say? Does she say, oh, Johnny, come away from there. You might get hurt if you get too close to that traffic. Or what does she say? 
S-T-O-P, exclamation, 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 stop. Why? Because she doesn't love him, right? Raw message, isn't it? She's yelling at him with all of her might. She's, she's saying it with a loud voice. Three angels' message, right? Every single one of them with a loud voice, with a loud voice, with a loud voice. God's trying to get our attention because we're right there. We're about to step into that 70-mile-an-hour traffic, and he's saying, stop. Bad results if you do that. Come away and show your allegiance to me by receiving the seal of the living God. Man, we serve such a great God. We serve such a merciful God who is willing to yell at us lovingly to get our attention. Or maybe it's just because we're hard of hearing. Last passage, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 15, verse 3. Saul has been reigning as king over Israel. Samuel comes to him with a message from the Lord in verse 3, and the Bible says this, and now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. The Amalekites were the first that made war with the children of Israel when they left their Egyptian captivity. They attacked the older and the young that were trailing behind at the back of the crowd, and they made war with them. And because of that, God cursed them and said that they would have to pay the consequence of that. And now he was choosing Saul to go and execute that punishment upon the Amalekites for what they did. And God gave, them a, gave Saul an explicit command, and that command was to do what? How much? Was it complicated, yes or no? Was it a simple message? God's messages are always simple. Don't eat from the tree. Destroy everything they have. Remember the Sabbath day. All these God's commands are very simple if we're willing to acknowledge them. So the command was go destroy everything that they had. Now the Bible goes on. We're just going to skip through this a little bit here. Verse 9, I'm going to just take a couple of verses. Verse 9 says this. Verse 8, let's go back to verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatling and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. Did Saul obey, yes or no? We can all see that. Plain as the nose on our face, we can see that Saul disobeyed. But you know what? We have a hard time seeing the same thing in our own lives don't we? We have a hard time seeing that inconsistency. But you see, Paul, Saul rather, he reasoned in his mind. He reasoned and he took what God said and he, he mixed it up with popular teachings at the time. It was customary when you went into battle to take the king and bring, it back from, bring him back from war. It was customary at the time to bring back the spoils of war. That was a custom. But that was not a custom that God wanted them to adopt at that time because everything that the Amalekites had was cursed and God didn't want anything cursed to come back from his, into Israel. Very plain. Saul disobeyed. Now, you can read the rest of the story this afternoon if you so choose to, but I want to read one, one more verse here in verse 26. 
Verse 26, the Bible says this, Samuel comes to Saul after he comes back from war with all of these spoils, and Samuel says this, and Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast what the word of the Lord? Thou hast what the word of the Lord? Thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Are there consequences to rejecting the word of the Lord, yes or no? But here's the amazing thing of this Bible story. Saul thought he was obeying God when in reality he was disobeying God. That's a dangerous place for us to get to as Christians where we think we are obeying, but in reality we are disobeying. And the Bible tells us the consequence of that is that they would be, or that he was, cut off. I dare say with fear and trembling that the same will happen to God's people if we choose that road. But we don't have to. We don't have to choose that road because we have a good shepherd who is leading his sheep. We have have the word of God that is plain and simple for every son and daughter of God to read and to understand for themselves. And I pray that this morning it will be said of the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church that John chapter 10 and verse 27 was true of them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, the Bible says. I pray that that's what would be said of the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church, of each one of us that are here. That this was a church that lived by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. That this was a church that when the devil came to tempt its members, they said, it is written. That this would be a church that the devil trembles as he thinks about the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church, for it is filled up with members who live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That they are not taking the word of God as it ought to say in their minds, but they're taking the word of God for what it says and living by its teachings. Dear Jesus is coming soon, friends. And he is not waiting for prophecy to be fulfilled. He's waiting for you and me to get rid of sin out of our lives. That's what's holding up the coming of our Lord. Not the Pope, not politics that we're all getting caught up in right now that's going on. That's not what's holding up the coming of the Lord. But he looks down to this earth and he sees his children. He says, I can't go through eternity without them. Father, can we just wait a little bit longer? Just a little bit longer so that they have an opportunity to follow my word. If we really want to hasten the coming of Jesus, we will come to him each morning and say, Lord, speak to me from your word and reprove me of sin and lead me in the path of righteousness. Is that your desire this morning? Lord, I want to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Help me with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we humbly come before you this morning, not with any pride in our hearts of anything that we can do, for we've tried many times, Lord, and we only fail. But Lord, we come to you this morning with a humble request, asking that you would speak to us from your word each morning, that we would live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and that we as Jesus would meet the temptations and the accusations of Satan with, it is written. Lord, we ask that you would purge our lives of sin, and that we would take the principles and the teachings of God's word, and we would apply them in our lives, no matter how painful it might be. Help us, dear God, 
to eradicate the world and worldliness out of our lives and to replace it with godliness, with contentment, being great gain. Help us towards this end, I pray. Bless us this next week, Lord, as we go forth from this place, braced and strengthened for hearing your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.